Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder today. I'm joined by reporter Carson Weber. Carson, how are you doing today? I am great, Ethan. Thank you. I'm also joined by reporter Jacob Rudner. Jacob, how are you doing today? Chipper, Ethan, doing chipper. And joined by site publisher Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you doing today? It is a splendid time to be with you, Ethan. Well, that is great to hear. Before we get into the Territorial Cup, which we will be recapping today, first, there's some news coming out of Arizona State football. Diamante Trainum uh, has headed into the transfer portal. Chris, what does this mean for ASU and who else could follow in Trainum's footsteps? Caught me by surprise. Very rarely do we see departures that are sort of perplexing, surprising. We know that Rashad White's headed to the NFL. Uh, he's going to be in the Reese's Senior Bowl. Um, he had a very successful season. One of the top players in his position in the country. The offense seemingly is going to remain intact. Uh, it was clear that Trainum was the number two uh, running back. He was very successful um, with his carries in terms of yards per, per carry average and um, would have been the feature player. He did have the, 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 the fumbling issue in back-to-back games. Washington State, USC didn't play the rest of the USC game and didn't have more than six carries in any of ASU's final four games. I don't, I'm not sure if that was a contributing factor. I haven't spoken with him yet about his decision to enter the transfer portal, but clearly this is a loss of confidence in uh, ASU moving forward. Uh, potentially there could also be some NIL implications going to a more prominent school. He's now an established college running back, probably will be in very much in demand. He um, turned down scholarship offers from Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan, Wisconsin, and others to go to ASU, some of whom did want him to play linebacker. But I think that he is going to be one of the top running backs uh, in the marketplace. Um, among transfers and can probably pick a a situation that's extremely um, um, good looking for his ability to go in and make a big impact in a heavy run game, maybe more of a balanced uh, uh, attack. Um, It's a huge hit for ASU, right? Because to, to lose white and train them in the same year, the only other scholarship running back that ASU has uh, remaining is Daniel Ngata, who is a very good player in his own right. He hasn't um, been a high usage guy for ASU, but he has the the look of someone who could handle that that capability. Uh, And then ASU does have a four-star commitment from Tevin White, that's the highest rated pledge on ASU's recruiting board for this class out of North Stafford High School in Virginia. He's a big kid, physically ready to play at the college level, 6'1", over 200 pounds. And running backs are a position where a lot of freshmen are able to come in and to be early. So I do think that, that if uh, Ngata remains and White comes into the fold, that they'll probably still have a pretty decent one-two punch. Um, as far as your question about the other potential departures, um, there, there have been rumors about uh, other guys leaving, perhaps some 
dissatisfaction with how things went offensively for ASU this year, leading to guys wanting to consider some, some of their options or maybe guys who didn't play that much despite ASU's lack of success on offense, maybe attributing it to not getting an opportunity that they would have liked to have. I don't know how many transfers there will be. We know that transfers are a just a nature, the nature of college football nowadays. An average number of transfers in any given year from a Power 5 program is probably somewhere in the six or seven, maybe eight range. Um, and ASU's had a couple already. Um, when you look at Cam Phillips also being a, a, an earlier in the year decision, uh, I, I'm sure that there will be more. I, I won't consider it to be necessarily a huge negative indictment of the way in terms of a vote of no confidence for the staff, unless you had a widespread uh, uh, number of departures on one side of the football not ruling out the possibility of it, but that hasn't materialized yet. And um, we also will see, Ethan, about what happens with some of ASU's veteran players who have been on campus for four years or maybe even five, um, such as Merlin Robertson, Darian Butler, um, Jermaine Lolay. Um, on the defensive side, Tamarcus Davis, I think is, is an important guy to watch. And then offensively, Jane Daniels comes to mind um, what his decision ends up being. I don't think he's going to go to the NFL draft by any stretch. He currently seems to be um, having conversations with ASU and trying to decide and to also talk with, um, you know, basically uh, the other offensive players, maybe trying to keep them into the fold. Then you have Donovan West will probably have a decision to be made whether he stays or goes based upon NFL draft feedback. So there is a lot going on, and we're going to keep covering it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, transfers is something we're starting to see all around the country. I mean, Jordan Porter in, in the middle of the season also went into the transfer portal for ASU, and it's just something that's continuously grown throughout all of college football. So it'll be something to look out for, for sure. And Arizona State is no different. Today in this podcast, past what we just talked about, we're going to talk about kind of a whole review of ASU season towards the end of our football section. And then we'll also get into ASU basketball's start to the season at the Battle for Atlantis. So stick around for that. But first off, we're going to recap the Territorial Cup. That just happened. ASU won 38-15 to against Arizona. This is now five straight wins over the Wildcats which is ASU's longest streak since 1965 to 1973, where they won nine straight. Herm Edwards is also now undefeated 4-0 against Arizona. And this means that ASU finishes its regular season at 8-4 overall and 6-3 in the Pac-12. But first off, Carson, will go to you. The first half was kind of rough for ASU, and they kind of looked like they were playing hand-in-hand with an Arizona team that haven't looked great all year. What did we see from the first half? Yeah, it was definitely a very underwhelming first half for ASU because they end up up 14-9 on the scoreboard, but they were significantly outgained 216 total yards to 128. 
and they really struggled to move the ball through the air. There were several instances in which they got burned through the air, and Arizona had tremendous success throwing the ball in that first half with Will Plummer, 15 of 19 for 215 yards. So there were all these components sort of working against them, but at the end of the day, it was just very timely plays that put ASU in a position to succeed. They had the strip sack from Jack Jones that Tyler Johnson then recovered inside the opposing one-yard line that set them up for an easy touchdown, which really you can't credit the offense with all that much. And then they were able to hold Arizona to three field goals when they were consistently getting down into the red zone, three short field goals. So that was really the difference. It was not that ASU outplayed Arizona play-to-play whatsoever. I think you could probably argue the opposite outside of the fact that ASU was tremendously effective against the Wildcats running the football, but it was really that situational soundness, which at times for ASU has actually been sort of an Achilles heel. In this game and in this first half, though, it was really strong in that respect, and that's how it was able to come out of the first half with a lead, even when it didn't always feel like it had been the stronger team. And and just to zero in on ASU's secondary performance, I think it's worth noting that Arizona accomplished its season average for passing yards per game of 216 or, you know, pretty much in the first half. And and that's one of those things where it's a reflection of ASU secondary, but also like Carson said, ASU did a good job of being able to rebound in the moments where it was giving up big plays. So for example, uh, Plummer finds Stanley Berryhill behind Jack Jones for a great catch. They gain a, a large chunk of yards and then ASU tightens up its defense and limits Arizona to a field goal. So uh, I, like Carson said, I think that ASU had a really mixed bag performance defensively in the second half, in the first half, excuse me. Uh, they basically are in this scenario where you're giving up a ton of yards and then you're limiting the points on the board. And at the end of the day, to me, that's kind of all that matters. I do still think it was an underwhelming performance. You look at the offense, like Carson said, and ASU was significantly outgained. Uh, it only had 43 total yards of offense in the second quarter, uh, including 3.6 rushing yards per carry, 40 overall, which accounted for the vast majority of the team's yardage total. Uh, and, and that's kind of one of those things that goes back to what we've been talking about all season, and that is that ASU's offense has been underwhelming this season. It's something that Herm Edwards talked about after the game, and it was quite clear in the first half. So I, I, we've seen some games recently with ASU where their, their possessions have been very few. Uh, Oregon State was one of those. That's Remember, we talked about in that podcast, ASU's decision to go for three after a six-minute drive in, in the uh, in kick a field goal rather than uh, try to go for a touchdown on, on fourth and goal at the three, I believe it was, because of just how few possessions there are. In this game really started out in a similar sort of vein. Uh, Arizona had 19 total plays in the first quarter alone compared to only nine for ASU. And we know that ASU had a touchdown on its only possession. But because Arizona was able to move the ball very effectively um, and, and especially do so via the pass, 112 passing yards, three of five uh, uh, third down conversions, sustained drives, uh, both of its long sort of longer sort of drives ended in, in, in field goals. Uh, the game felt very close. ASU was, was, was good and also fortunate in that Arizona bogged down uh, three different times 
deep in ASU territory and was only able to come away with a field goal on each of those possessions. ASU's red zone defense hasn't been very good this season. Um, one of the, the lesser areas of its overall pretty good defensive season, but you have to give a lot of credit to uh, how they tighten things up once they got back down uh, near their, near their, their goal line. And um, so I, 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 but I also would say that Arizona is for how bad of a team that, that it was this season, that the first half, it didn't leave you feeling like ASU was in a good position. Rather, it was the contrary. You had uh, Arizona with almost as many passing yards in the first half as it's averaged throughout the whole game. And um, I didn't think that um, there was any sort of clear indication that ASU was going to be able to close that off in the second half, um, even with Arizona struggling to run the ball effectively whatsoever. Uh, a little bit early, the first drive, maybe after that, it, it started to become very one-dimensional. And, and as we're going to talk about, of course, kudos to ASU for um, getting a handle on that in the second half. Yep, as you just alluded to, ASU did a pretty good job of turning it around in the second half. A couple big plays, Jaden Daniels in particular, kind of broke it open with his 48-yard touchdown run. But Carson, what did we see from ASU in that second half that really allowed them to do that and play better and really get on the score sheet and stop Arizona more? Well, the second half was definitely a very very different dynamic throughout. And it's not really that they were totally containing the Arizona offense because uh, Arizona continued to move the ball and continued to kind of remain within reach. Even though they were consistently down a score or two, they didn't feel fully out of it until the Jack Jones pick six in the early fourth quarter, which made it a 38 to 15 game, the final score. But I think that what you saw was ASU's offense get going really in a more significant way. And still, it wasn't overwhelming production through the air, but there was some timely production. You have uh, Jaden Daniels to Ricky Pierce all touchdown. And then really, ASU was able to just run the ball very consistently as it has for so much of this year. In the second half, 148 rushing yards, 7.4 yards per attempt. I think that that was really the key, but... Like I said, it's not like they shut down Arizona through the air. They did continue to find success against Arizona, stopping the run as they did in the first half. But it was really a combination of the offense getting going on the ground. Jaden Daniels making a huge play with his feet to really open up the second half. And then another extremely timely play by the defense, which effectively bought ASU 14 points in this game and also saved some probably on that drive because Arizona was moving down the field. So that's why you look at this game and uh, Arizona outgains ASU and it's not a remarkable statistical profile for the Sun Devils overall. It really was a couple plays that swung this from being a pretty darn competitive tight game to uh, ultimately looking kind of like a blowout on the score sheet. I would just say, Carson, that one thing that I thought from the second half was that ASU's passing attack kind of served its purpose. I mean, it might not have been overwhelming, 
with 38 yards, certainly, but it was five for five. Jaden Daniels did throw a touchdown. So there were no incompletions. And while there weren't any huge plays, it wasn't like he was inaccurate, which is something that has been a problem for him this entire season. And he was able to connect with somebody in the end zone, which he's struggled to do throughout the year as well. And then obviously, like you mentioned, ASU's running the ball at an extremely high rate in the second half with 148 rushing yards, 7.4 yards per carry. So offensively, it was a it was an impressive half, uh, particularly on the ground. But I also don't think that Jaden Daniels was bad by any means. I will say that ASU was extremely penalized in the second half, which was something that was kind of surprising considering that ASU hasn't been horrible in the penalty department at home. Uh, seven penalties for 90 yards after halftime is a jarring amount of fouls for a team that the entire season has been discussing the fact that it needs to be cleaner with its discipline and it needs to not run into so many penalties. And of course, some of those yards are born from Jack Jones throwing the ball into the stands and several unsportsmanlike conducts, but still you look at this team and, and even though it is an emotional game, that's a focus and something that even Herm Edwards after the game said that even in this scenario, he isn't necessarily pleased with the fact that his team was penalized as much as it was in this game. So overall, it was a solid half. It was a significantly improved half from what the performance was in the first half. And uh, obviously it was enough for ASU to win the game. Yeah. How about the fact that ASU didn't even throw the ball in the fourth quarter whatsoever? Jane Daniels was five for five in the second half, only five pass attempts, all completions. ASU scored twice in the third quarter, the, the, the run that Carson talked about, 48 yards, whatever it was. It was a, apparently a broken route by Rashad White that Daniels improvised and run. I think that opened the game up. Arizona then came back, scored a, a touchdown, um, and then ASU answered with another drive and touchdown. And that was where Jane Daniels had some success being able to throw the football and a balanced offensive attack, not a lot of yards, as you said there. In the fourth quarter, it was uh, obviously the play of the game was the Jack Jones interception return for a touchdown. You had Arizona – um, driving down to ASU's 22-yard line, and with the it was a first down when that play happened. Right, um, Arizona ended up not scoring in in, in the um, the fourth quarter. But imagine a scenario in which you have a 14-point swing reversal, where instead of ASU having 38 points, ASU uh, had imagine if ASU had 31 points. And then Arizona had 22 points and there still would have been at that point in the game, um, like 10 plus minutes left. Right. So I think very clearly ASU won the big plays in the game between the, uh, the interception, um, no, the interception that, Jones had the, the forced fumble strip sack by Jack Jones and Tyler Johnson put into the end zone, the 48-yard run by Jane Daniels. Arizona had none of those types of big plays, and that turned what 
otherwise was a reasonably close game in terms of total yardage, yards per play, the ability to move the football on drives into what looked like, as Carson alluded, more of a blowout in the, in the win column. Yeah, and, and we just spoke on kind of the specifics of the game and, and going from the first half to the second half. But in, in a more overall standpoint and viewpoint of the game, what are, what are kind of the thoughts in the game, how ASU performed, and just kind of the caliber of the win? Carson, we'll go to you first. Yeah, well, I think that really broadly, this was the kind of game that obviously they absolutely needed to win and probably needed to win convincingly. And so obviously it's not going to leave the kind of sweet taste in the mouth of the players and fans or whatever that the 70-7 to victory did last year. But at the end of the day, ASU was essentially able to do what it needed to in this game. And that wasn't always overwhelming. I mean, again, we still saw that they are limited as far as the passing game, even if they were efficient in this one, just because the personnel is pretty limited. And Jaden Daniels only targeted four people in this game. Again, only had multiple completions to two people. But the defense was able to step up and make timely plays. They were able to avoid turning the ball over on offense. And effectively avoid the self-inflicted errors that have hurt them so much. Even though they did end up being pretty penalized because of some unsportsmanlike conducts, that was not ultimately impactful on the outcome of the game. And they were able to avoid, for the most part, some of the kinds of penalties that have plagued them so consistently throughout this year. So they basically got what they needed to get done, done in this one. And, uh, for a team that has had such a tumultuous season, that's really kind of all I think that people could really ask for. I would agree with what Carson said. I think that ASU did what it needed to do in this game. Uh, obviously, the, a loss to Arizona changes the outlook dramatically on ASU season and even changes whether or not Herm Edwards continues with the program, which is something we're going to get into. But, you know, ASU had to win this game, essentially, and it did. And so I don't think it was pretty. Um, I think that it left a lot to be desired, as Carson said. There are certainly issues with the passing game that were quite clear uh, in this game. Uh, there are discipline, discipline problems with this team, excuse me, that I think were clear in this game. And all of those things will have to be remedied over the offseason, however the team is going to go about that. But at the end of the day, this was an important win for ASU and it definitely did something to maintain uh, you know, an average at best outlook on the season rather than a very poor overall reflection of it. Yeah. The, the Arizona was really um, in some respects, a no win proposition for ASU, meaning that of course ASU had to win the game uh, a loss would have been catastrophic, but there's nobody walking around going, oh, wow, they, they beat uh, Arizona. Like you, don't, like, you don't get a lot of credit for things that you're supposed to do in life, right? Like nobody's, uh, you know, patting me on the back because I knocked out my house payment, right? Like Arizona's bad. ASU shouldn't have lost at all at home this season, lost one game at home to Washington State. That was a disaster, right? A 16-point favorite. 
ASU loses. ASU was a 20-point favorite against Arizona. So that would have been a disaster. ASU should have been 7-0 at home this year. Minimum record for ASU this year should have been nine wins. Period. Because even if you say, well, they could have lost UCLA, okay, well, they were ahead two touchdowns at Utah at halftime. They had a catastrophic performance against BYU. Right? So there you go. Um, They, you know, I think it's just they could have easily beaten Oregon State if they played a good game. Um, So there's nobody who's going to say who has really a good handle on the Pac-12, on ASU's historical um, uh, challenges that ASU maximized this golden opportunity of the season. We've talked about that ad nauseum. It's been covered. We all get it. And the other thing I want to say is that um, Ray Anderson's decision to bring Herm back, Herm's decision to not retire, none of that is surprising to me because Ray would, by firing Herm Edwards, Ray Anderson would be acknowledging his own failure effectively, right? And this is the last thing that Ray Anderson and Herm Edwards will do in their professional careers. Like they're at, they're in their twilight. This is the end for them. They're, they're not going to be doing anything else professionally at a high level. So they don't want to have that end in a way where uh, it's like a really big negative thing that their careers end on. And that still might be the case ultimately, right? Because ASU fans are going, well, if you're not going to be able to do it this year, well, when when are you going to be able to do that? I think that's a realistic question. And that's a fair question. Uh, They're going to have a hard time selling season tickets next year. They're going to have a hard time getting fans psyched up for another year when this year resulted in a bowl game that is going to move the needle when when chase lucas and everybody else was talking about rose bowl or bust and they beat ucla oh we're going to come back to you here and and all that they they squandered their chance um and now it's basically like prove to me that we were wrong about you that you that you do have the ability to accomplish these things that you should have already been able to accomplish and part of it is, from a framing standpoint, it's not easy to have built a program to where eight and four, six and three in the Pac-12 is a disappointment. So in that respect, you do have to give credit to Herm Edwards, Antonio Pierce, the way that they recruited. The uh, I think their defense did a pretty good job overall this season. Like they, that's not bad. No, nobody's saying. That they that they that they did a that they did a bad job. It's 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 more so that are you going to be able to maximize your opportunities, and what is the ceiling on your potential? And those things right now look like due to their self inflicted problems, penalties, not being able to really maximize Jaden Daniels, 
their passing game being really quite bad for you know for much of the season. Um, it's like where do you go from there? Like you, you, they were extremely heavily penalized in the second half against Oregon State with the same types of problems that they had against BYU in the opener. That's the whole season. So how is that not cultural? How is that not coaching? How is that not player development? Right. Those are the things that lead to a lot of understandable um, dissatisfaction and lack of confidence in what's going to happen moving forward. And, and you touched on it, eight and four on the season with Herm Edwards returning. The real question is kind of just what to expect from the program with Herm Edwards at the helm at head coach expected to be at the helm at head coach for another season. Carson, we'll go to you first. What is kind of the expectations under Herm Edwards for another season? Well, I think that it's related to some of the things that Chris touched on. Obviously this season was not fully up to expectations for ASU and there were some pretty obvious missed opportunities and Herm talked about that. And next year's team is not going to have this kind of talent. Presumably, that would be quite the feat, just given the experience that was on this roster. We don't know exactly who among the players who have used at least four years of eligibility are going to uh, leave versus stay, but it seems reasonable to expect that a good portion of them at least will likely leave. And then you have the fact that obviously ASU is facing a significant recruiting deficit because of the ongoing NCAA investigation where they're dead last in the Pac-12. So you add on to that the fact that clearly there were some coaching issues seemingly exposed this year where you do have the massive discipline things. You have the consistency issues. You have maybe some of the schematic things offensively. All of those things obviously are only put more prominently on display when you don't have the talent to compensate for that. And that may be what ASU is headed more towards next year. So I don't know if I could lay out specific expectations, but I think that clearly, as Herm Edwards said, this program is going to have to be aggressive in the transfer portal. They are going to have to really try to add that talent where they can. And then there have to be some significant improvements as far as sharpness, discipline, things of that nature, where you're avoiding the self-inflicted errors that at so many points this year were a major issue for a really talented and experienced ASU team that, yes, dealt with a lot of injuries as well. But nevertheless, these were problems for the team pretty much from the jump. So those things will have to change. And there's going to have to be definitely some talent added through the transfer portal to uh, make really a more manageable situation for ASU football next year. Not only that, but it became significantly harder to put together expectations for ASU football when USC adds a guy like Lincoln Riley to its program. Lincoln Riley is going to bring with him a whole slew potentially of, of five-star prospects. Oklahoma had, I think it was five uh, top 100 recruits in its 2023 commit list from Southern California. All of them have decommitted from Oklahoma and according to 24-7 sports, likely to end up at USC, which I don't think is any surprise. 
And ASU had an opportunity this season with USC in a very down year with the rest of the Pac-12 really in a very down year to potentially win the Pac-12 South to play in the conference title game and who knows what happens from there. And I would just say that all of those things are going to be significantly harder to achieve moving forward now that USC seems to be on the brink of returning to a national powerhouse as it has hired one of the best young football coaches in the country. And Chris has said it numerous times, and I believe we all have on our podcast, on the site, we've written about it. This was an opportunity that ASU needed to take advantage of, and quite frankly, it didn't. And so moving forward, what does that look like in terms of setting expectations? Can you expect that ASU wins the Pac-12 South next year? I don't think you can. And you can even forget the whole thing about, you know, losing some talent and having to replace it. I just don't think ASU will be the best team in the Pac-12 South next year, and really it won't even be close. And so all of those things are very challenging when it comes to your question, Ethan, about setting expectations for Herm Edwards moving forward. I I think really at the moment, though, the reaction should just be that ASU missed a massive opportunity, and that became abundantly clear with USC's pretty much instant improvement that it made this week. So we we live in a a world in which – there's often frequently going to be significant roster turnover and development from year to year in college sports, college football, college basketball. Like that's going to happen. That this is the new reality that we're in. And sometimes that's going to work out really well. In fact, there have been teams that have largely rebuilt their rosters and it seemed like they were going to be down and then they made a quick recovery. And then there've been others where it sort of spiraled out. I think ASU has some pretty severe headwinds that they're moving into when you have one of your offensive star young players decide to transfer others who were seem to be considering doing so. And ASU's last in the Pac-12 in the recruiting rankings due to the NCAA investigation still has these three coaches, Brendan McGill Hawkins on paid administrative leave. Um, I, I, they're going to have to end up being very active in the transfer portal because they're not going to sign a large high school class. They have 37 freshmen, I believe, right? because of the eligibility freeze and they have a lot more veteran older guys and they probably will want to replace those guys with older guys to sort of space their classes. They're not going to want to add a bunch of younger guys who are already behind a bunch of other freshmen or second year or redshirt freshmen in their third years or whatever. Um, So I, I think there's a possibility that they could hit in the portal successfully um we're gonna have to follow what happens with their quarterback situation don't think Jade Daniels is going pro um is he going to be back at ASU we'll find out is ASU gonna go after Spencer Rattler um who's from the valley transferred transferring from Oklahoma can't rule that out are there other big name possibilities um could they have an influx of several impact guys potentially on offense i don't know maybe um so there's just so many possibilities that really could happen here as it relates to how they will move 
from this season into next year, coupled with how many of their veteran guys may decide to return versus leave the Lolays and the linebackers and Marcus Davis's of the world, um, Don West, et cetera, I mentioned them. I don't know. Um, I, I do think that they need to do some serious soul searching about what happened this year from a, a cultural standpoint. They need to inject more toughness, more, more fortitude, more tenacity into their everyday um, operation. I don't think, I think that Herb Edwards is sort of, um, there's a, he, there's a lack of that. He has more of a NFL uh, approach to, to um, the way that he interacts with players, it's a professional type of an operation. In college, you need to kick guys in the rear end more, basically, right? Uh, I have to kick all you guys in the rear end sometimes. Am I right? Uh, you know, like we're not going to get the most out of our operation at Sun Devil Source unless I am pushing my interns really aggressively. That is something I have learned over, over many years of doing it. Some people, not as much maybe as others. Some are self-starters. Some are ultra hungry and they understand like I want to be the best in order for me to be the best. I have to push myself to the limit. A lot of other people, they don't feel that way. They don't understand that. It's not, it's not intuitive, you know, or maybe they, 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 they need it because they, they just have to have somebody pushing that and, and, and asking that of them. Okay. That is the way I feel about you guys and all of my interns. And we've been pretty successful at producing people who have been um, really good and competent, who have also been extremely highly talented. Like I'm getting five-star, four-star prospects. I'm saying that that is similar to ASU. You need some of these guys, they need a fire lit under their rear ends on an everyday basis. People heard some of the leaked uh, audio, Kirby Smart, talking about what he wanted to do to an opponent at halftime, right? You need some of that. You need that juice. You need fire. Their ASU needs a lot more of that, especially with its offense between Zach Hill, who's a, a very sort of calm, almost dispassionate type of a guy. They, um, and Herm Edwards. They're, to me, it's like not a surprise that they're very stoic on the offensive side and maybe even seem like they're not fully into a higher gear at times when they need to be, when that is the case. Um, such as when things start going bad for them against a Utah, a BYU, a Washington State, et cetera. So I think they need to take stock of those things and they need to change, they need to dial up uh, some of that in their culture. Yeah, and for now, for this podcast, that's going to be it for our discussion of ASU football, but it definitely isn't it for our coverage of ASU football. So at the end of the podcast, I'll go into more specifics at what our coverage will look like for the next few months. But for now, we're going to go to the beginning of ASU basketball season. They have a two and five start, which is the worst start since joining the conference for them at the battle for Atlantis. They went 0 and three, losing to Baylor, Syracuse and Loyola, Chicago. None of those games are very close. They have nine new players that Bobby Hurley and company are trying to assimilate into the team. Carson, we'll go to you first. 
how has basketball been doing in this beginning of the season and what do they really need to do to get going more so in the right direction? Well, it has definitely, I would say, been a disappointing start given the expectations. And uh, I think that we were generally pretty impressed by what we saw from ASU basketball in the preseason. Obviously, it was a daunting task rebuilding almost an entire roster and bringing in all these transfers, but it seemed like they did have sort of this synergy and this inherent understanding of the culture and identity of the team. And there seemed to be some complementary players skill set wise, and we have not seen a ton of that pan out. Now, obviously it's worth noting that this is a really, really challenging start to the schedule. And with the exception of that loss to uh, UC Riverside, which I think was actually a pretty impressive team. It's not like there are really any black mark losses on this resume for ASU. Syracuse hasn't gotten off to the smoothest start to the year, but they're still a top 60 team in Ken Palm. And then obviously Baylor is an exceptional well-oiled machine. Loyola Chicago is so consistently strong. San Diego State has some offensive issues, but defensively really strong. So it's not like there's a whole ton of games that you look at and think, well, those are terrible losses as far as just the straight-up result win or loss, but the nature in which they have happened has definitely been concerning, I would say, just because there seems to be a lack of offensive direction with this ASU team. There is not a particularly clear hierarchy or flow, and I think that you see that where there are certain games where a particular player feels like, okay, I need to step up and this needs to be my stretch. We've seen it from Marion Jackson in a couple spots who really has gotten off to a rough start to the year. ASU is not shooting the ball particularly well, under 33% from deep, which has been problematic and really just are lacking, again, that blend of offensive flow or they would need some sort of exceptionally dynamic shot creation off the dribble which they also don't have. I think DJ Horn has definitely been the most impressive player in that respect, but that's not enough. That's not nearly enough. So I think we have seen some other issues with this ASU team. At times, they have kind of been killed by transition defense, although I think that their overall defensive effort has generally been pretty good. And yes, they are more athletic and bigger but than they were last year, certainly. It's not like they have been exceptional on the glass, though. And defensively, I think that they have definitely made strides, but it just hasn't been enough given some of their offensive issues. And I think you can really key in on some of the guard play and say those guys haven't been efficient and consistently productive enough with the exception of DJ Horn. I mean, Luther Muhammad is shooting below 32% from the field. Marion Jackson below 32%. Jay Heath, 38%. And especially with Marcus Bagley out, ASU does not have the kind of creators in its front court to compensate for that. Even with Marcus Bagley, he is a guy who can be extremely productive, but a lot of that is going to come within the flow of an offense, knocking down catch and shoot threes and whatnot. And you can't ask Kamani Lawrence or certainly anybody else in that front court to go and be a, a jump starter for an entire offense. Those are guys who are meant to score within the flow, who are meant to cut, who are meant to roll to the bucket and clean up on the offensive glass. And in certain spots, guys like Bagley be catching shooters. And so when the guard play has been as labored and those guys have been as inefficient as they have been, it just leaves ASU's offense in a pretty 
bad spot overall. And that is going to have to change. Those guys are going to have to pick up their play or else this definitely looks to be spiraling towards a pretty disappointing season for ASU overall. And uh, I think that, yes, again, this was a challenging task, but I also think the defense hasn't been up to expectations. Like I said, it's been improved from last year when it was really a major issue, but the tenacity that we saw in ASU season opener, the, the intensity that we heard about throughout the preseason, how that was going to be this team's identity that has not been on display certainly consistently enough. So there are a lot of issues with this team right now, a lot of things that need to be figured out. And yes, it would certainly help them if Marcus Bagley were healthy, but that would not just put a bandaid over all of these issues. And uh, ASU certainly does not look like the kind of top four team in the Pac-12 that we were anticipating. And that's not to say that they couldn't be because this is, is a challenging part of the season and it's a very rehauled roster, but there would have to be significant progress, major progress, certainly for them to get to that point. And I don't think that's a reasonable expectation at this juncture. So look, they have to understand what they need to hang their hat on and then they have to be able to go do it. This team is not broadly skilled enough on the offensive end to hang their hat on that stuff. They need to be a grimy, gritty, physical, intense, defensive team. And they need to not wane in that regard from possession to possession. And they need to then turn that into a very high defensive rebounding percentage. And they aren't doing that right now. They're 228 in, uh, in well, what they allow offensive rebounds to opponents to 145 in their own offensive rebounding margin. Um, they are adjusted efficiency 102 defense. They're effective field goal defense 208. Their turnover percentage defense 228. That's bad. It's all bad. They, they are 290th in three-point percentage defense. That's horrible. Okay? So what's happening is they aren't guarding the ball enough, uh, physically enough, smartly enough. They aren't doing a great job on their defensive rotations. They're not closing out to the ball. They're not boxing out well enough. They're not getting rebounds well enough. And they're not generating enough deflections steals offense with their defense that is by far number one their problem in my opinion now offensively they have again not enough skill they have guys they try to do all the three-man weave stuff to generate mismatches at the outset of their offensive possessions problem with that though is even if they do generate mismatches which they aren't generating enough of because teams will sag or they will switch and they'll be able to wallow it and they'll be okay. But when they do, which sometimes they have, they don't have all of their guards have the, the ability to create off of the dribble on their own to generate shots for others and, or they're too selfish to, to take, make the most of those opportunities. And then they don't have enough uh, other ways that they generate offense. 
pin downs, uh, flare screens, uh, um, screen to screen interactions where they can, they've been able to execute effectively. Uh, where is the ability to get their bigs involved in um, pick and roll, pick and pop actions? ASU hasn't had anyone since Romello White be able to do any of that. And so what ends up happening is they get, they get too many guys in one place. They get kind of bogged down. They don't have the ability to, to um, or they're not deciding to run actions that generate the ball into the post with some opportunities to then uh, score it in the, in the post or play from an inside out in that vantage. And I don't know, I don't see cohesively the strategic things, the building blocks being there that illustrate that they are moving in the direction of being able to do some of those things. Um, and then of course, as Carson said, when you also on top of that have Marion Jackson and Luther Muhammad shooting worse than 25% or no better than 25% from three uh, and Marcus Bagley is sidelined who's your another three point shooter and you got DJ Horn and guys are just kind of, you know, they're just some, some Chuck and Duck stuff that's happening out there. It's, it's, it's kind of ugly. Gotta say it. And I, I don't think that the sum equals the parts right now. And they need to become a much grittier defensive and rebounding team. And um, absent that, I don't think that they're going to have a, a significant turnaround in what they're doing this year. And in terms of that and being able to turn around the season, they're going to have to do it pretty quickly. They start Pac-12 play against Washington State tomorrow, which is Wednesday. We'll be there covering that game, so stay tuned for that coverage as well as basketball coverage throughout the season. I talked about earlier, give you more specifics about our coverage for ASU football in the next upcoming months. We'll have a lot of recruiting coverage with the early signing period just three weeks away, so stay tuned to that as well as looking out for a premium podcast on the recruiting subject to kind of set the stage for what ASU will be doing in the recruiting cycle. We'll cover, continue to cover, I should say, all the breaking news on ASU's football roster and any transfer portal additions and losses that we kind of touched on may be possible uh, in the upcoming near future. Also, there will be, if you want to know more about the Arizona Territorial Cup win that we just talked about, there will be a regular season ending 10 takeaways that will be put up by Chris. And we also will be tracking where ASU will be bowling. Right now, the options that look the most likely are the Holiday Bowl and the Las Vegas Bowl, both of which on the last days of December, we will know for sure where ASU will be bowling this Sunday. So stay tuned for that information when that becomes readily available. But for now, that's it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. For Chris Cartman, Jacob Brunner, and Carson Reber, I'm Ethan Ryder. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time.